guys. Zach and I are extremely excited to announce our second live event with Thinking Poker hosts Andrew Brokus and Nate Mavis. This event will be in the same style as our Grey Grammar event, where participants will have the opportunity to play in a filmed TV-style cash game using RFID technology. These games will be commentated by Zach, myself, and the Thinking Poker crew. In addition to participating in the game, signups can add on a coaching package that highlights the player's strengths and weaknesses, gives in-depth commentary on every hand the player was involved in from the four of us, as well as a customized improvement plan using proven methods. We'll be having four sessions, all at a location in the New York City area, the weekend of March 25th and 26th. For more information, head to justhandspoker.com slash thinkingpokernyc or email me at jack at justhandspoker.com to reserve your seat. All right, guys, thanks for listening, and enjoy the hand. Hey, Jack. Hey, Zach. How are you doing on this fine day? I'm doing well. It's nice to be in the same room as you again. Yeah, it's, it's a nice, nice pleasure. It doesn't get to happen too often. So I hear you've got a hand for me. I guess I do. This was from our little weekend at MGM a few weeks back. So a kind of like nondescript, look like, looks like a younger 30s, mid-30s uh, white guy with sports clothing. He bought in for 1000 with chips from his pocket, and he's played for about two orbits and has played fairly tight. Uh, I think maybe he's played two or three hands, nothing of note. There's three limps to me, including him. He's under the gun. I raise 240 with pocket tens. And this is at a 2-5 no limit game where uh, I had about 2,000 at the time. He had about 1,000. And I'd say the average stack at the table was uh, a little bit upwards of 1,000. And then it gets to him, and he really quickly makes it uh, 165. So first off, I would just ask, like, does this guy... Based on your description, I think there's a decent chance he's a professional. Would you concur? Yeah, sorry, I didn't say that explicitly. Yeah, he has all the the trappings of a professional. An image that I'm looking for, not having myself in the future, but yes, he had the uniform on. Okay, so he raised 160, you said? Yeah, he raised 165. Uh, well, the limp, the limp re-raise can be worrisome, but I think it's a little bit more worrisome from someone who's not a professional. I think someone who looks like a professional in this day and age should have a light preventing range. Either way, we've got uh, pretty good odds to call with this hand pocket tens, considering that we could flop a set. Uh, we have a pretty strong hand, and we're in position, so I think calling is probably almost certainly the correct play. Yeah, pre-flop, I'm not really considering doing anything but calling. I, I think it's a more interesting spot with, like, a lower pocket pair. Um, but with pocket tens, I think it's a pretty clear call. So uh, everyone else folds. So we see a flop with about $345 in the pot. And the flop is the two of spades, the six of spades, and the eight of spades. And I have pocket tens with the ten of spades. And he very quickly throws out two black chips. Well, I think we have a pretty simple call. We, you know, have... There's there's some hands that are going to have us in really bad shape. You know, aces, kings, queens, jacks with a spade. But we do have an overpair. Uh, we would expect, I think, this player to be c a high percentage, probably even higher than maybe is best. 
Uh, and we have an overpair of the board, and we have a flush draw, and I don't think at this point we should be folding a hand with this much equity against this player's range. So what do you think that range actually looks like? Because in game I was thinking that a lot of the hands that we're ahead of are generally great double-bearing barreling candidates, which on blanks I'm not sure how I would feel about calling. So I, I feel like his range here is a lot of uh, overpairs that are beating us. Uh, high card hands, maybe like ace-king or ace-queen offsuit that have a single spade. Um, but obviously against someone that looks like a professional, I think they could maybe just have like a small pocket pair or suited ace that they're deciding to just kind of bluff once and be done with it. Uh, but it's hard for me to... Yeah, in-game, in, in just having really no reads on this player besides that they look like a professional and that they've played relatively tight so far. Uh, nothing in particular that I remember from the two orbs I've been with them. I didn't feel like I was able to really put this guy in a range of hands. Well, I guess I'm sort of starting at pre-flop and working from that. So I think someone who has an under-the-gun limb three-bang range... I think that range is going to be pretty similar to, you know, the range uh, they're going to be free betting from other seats. I'm not sure that... I think some players might just limp their entire range and then choose to have a limp folding climb limp three betting range. Uh, so I'm not necessarily saying it's exactly the same as what this player is going to be free betting on the button, but I do think we're going to see the same types of hands. So I could see... You know, suited aces of all kinds, some pocket pairs, uh, some premiums, and I, I could see hands like, you know, ace-king, ace-queen. Uh, so of those hands, I think many of them are going to be tempted to bet on a flop like this. And I, I do think we're going to see some double barreling. Uh, I think a spade will probably protect our hand pretty well. Like, I, I'm not sure we'll be able to call a bet when a spade hits, but I also think that we don't have to fear being bluffed anywhere near as much when a spade hits. Uh, so I think that equity against the non, the zero spade portion of his range is going to be fairly, you know, easily realized when we call. I also think that even though this is a professional, uh, it doesn't mean that it's a professional that's going to pick up, you know, on this being a good two-railing spot for him with a lot of his bluffs. Uh, also, I think this is a very solid hand to have as a call one street and fold the next street, because he does still probably have many of the overpairs, uh, and he could have flushes here. So I don't think there's any reason that we need to be calling with the intention of calling two streets, because uh, I think enough of his hands will give up, and we'll be able to realize some equity. Um, so, yeah, I think calling here with a hand that has this much equity against his range, I think is the right thing to do. Yeah, I think it's a mistake that I think I made frequently at my time at MGM, was I saw someone that pre-flop seemed to play what I thought would be well based on just their frequencies with like a small sample size, and they look like professionals, so I thought that they thought about things in similar ways in certain spots, and I ended up giving, I think, a lot of credit to you know, people that looked and acted like 2-5 grinders but made a lot of post-flop errors. In this particular spot, 
I, I thought about it a lot on the flop, almost, you know, for a little over a minute before making the call, which I don't like to do because I think it kind of turns my hand face up. Um, and yeah, I still couldn't come to like I, I agree that the range you described him is the range that I would describe him to, but then it's just in terms of frequencies, like is how what percentage of the suitcases are is he doing it with? What percentage of those suitcases does he continue to barrel? You know, I think we both agree on the types of hands that would be in his range, but it's what he's doing with those hands and like what percentage of the time that still I honestly don't feel really confident about. Yeah, I mean it's it's not something we're gonna be able to feel confident about, but I think we could think about this in a couple of ways. One way we might think about this is that, you know, we, from a game theory standpoint, we have to defend a certain amount of our range. And I think an overpair with a flush draw is just definitely going to fall into that category. So I think if we're going to fold here, it has to be an exploitative fold. And I think given the types of hands I think Dylan is likely to limp three bet, I don't think this is necessarily the right spot for an exploitative fold. Another thing you mentioned about, you know, someone who looks like a 2-5 grinder, or maybe a 2-5 pro who is making huge errors, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I think lots of pros are, you know, sort of extreme regs uh, who derive a large part of their income from playing poker are not very good. And that's what happens when you play in a room that has so many recreational players who are making massive mistakes all the time is that you develop an ecosystem where the viable professional doesn't necessarily play that well. Uh, so I think making an assumption that a player is going to play the way we think they should play and therefore make our lives difficult uh, is not a good assumption to make. Also, I think in terms of the tank here, I don't love tanking because to me this is a pretty clear call, uh, or at least a call that we can feel good about and therefore... Uh, make it in an amount of time that maybe disguises our range a little bit better. But given that you did tank, I don't necessarily think that this is a spot where if you tank and then do call, you're capped. If you had a hand like uh, the Nuff Flush or some other flush, I think you might take a while to make a decision, like, should I raise, should I call? Uh, so yeah, I definitely don't think it's a spot where we ne- we now have to fold after tanking because we are we capped ourselves and you know we're just going to induce a lot of bluffs that we're not going to be able to call. Uh, so yeah, I, I think even after tanking, I would still call uh, for all the reasons I laid out. Yeah, I think that's right. So I ended up calling. So then we had about seven sixty five in the pot with a little over a pot size bet left behind. And the turn is kind of the, I think, the ultimate scare card, at least in the villain's mind, and a very interesting card, the Ace of Spades. And he takes about five seconds and goes all in. So the Ace of Spades is a pretty good card for us to see, since now he still he still has plenty of nut flushes. He has kings with the King of Spades, and... He has, he has kings, queens with the king or queen of spades that he might be shoving for value here. Uh, he has hands like ace-king with the king of spades, ace-queen with the queen of spades that he might be shoving for value here. That being said, uh, I think this card is such a scare card in his mind 
that he's very likely to continue with Alga's heir. And I think a non-insignificant, uh, you might say a significant amount of time, when he does have a hand like kings with the king of spades, he might check to give you an opportunity to bluff, uh, since you know the best hand you could have at that point would be a queen high flush draw. Uh, and you might be forbidding queen sometimes pre-flop. And there's maybe not a ton of other hands with the queen of spades, that you would have here. Obviously, ace-queen also with the queen of spades is a possibility, but you might decide to fold that pre-flop. You might decide to forfeit a pre-flop. So I think giving you an opportunity to turn some of your hands into a bluff, you know, with a nutted hand here, is pretty reasonable, especially since this hand needs no protection, since you would probably assume you would raise a set on the flop. Yeah, yeah. I th- also think he might not bet full pot on the turn when he has a nutted hand. Uh, when he's not really worried about me. Like, if he is the king of spades or queen of spades in any form, I don't think he's very worried if the board pairs. You know, I think it's very likely that I raise the flop of the sale, like you were saying. Um, you know, it was a weird hand, and I think a lot of it is maybe something I didn't, didn't really mention before, was there was, for some reason, I just felt that he was very strong the entire time. Which is, I think, what... You know, I think against a recreational player... I should let these reads come in to play more, especially with a really small sample size of two orbits. But, you know, for what it's worth, I think that, like, my poker instinct was telling me that he was very strong. And I think more and more as I've, as I've played more, that that instinct is becoming right a higher percentage of the time. That being said, I think against someone that, like, looks like the way they do, and it's likely a professional, because of my small sample size, I kind of just have to think about the theory and how on the flop I just had one of my best candidates to call, and on the turn I had one of the best candidates to call. So I thought about it for, again, a little over a minute, and ended up calling. And the results were kind of interesting, um, and I think shows why, like, you ultimately, it's always good to check your reason, your instincts against the theory, because I was kind of right in a few ways. He had pocket aces. <laughs> so, you know, big post-flop error, check. Very strong, check. <laughs> um, and the board didn't pair, and I, and I won. But it was just like, it was a very weird hand. Yeah. Yeah, there, I mean, there's not much to say. Uh, we still don't know what he would do with the parts of his range that maybe make more sense to bet here. Uh, obviously, when he's betting a hand like aces here, it makes calling much better. Yeah, I think against a professional, you're going to get a read of strength much more often uh, because I think it's easier to have sort of a balanced look that maybe exudes a little bit more strength than it does weakness. So yeah, in this in this instance, I wouldn't let my physical read inform my play very much at all. So yeah, I mean, I think I think you played the hand fine. I definitely understand why you would want to bring this hand in because it it's definitely a little bit of a stressful hand to play, just because you're sort of in this part of your range that's doing really well against his bluffs and is drawing dead, like, a lot of the time. So, yeah, I think you played it 
played it correctly. You know, had it been the king of spades and he shows with a set of kings, you fold uh, and he shows, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you. Or if he showed a set of kings, it is. And I wouldn't blame you for folding even though that opening extremely disappointing. And it was weird because like an orbit later, he left and did table change. Not the hand after, but he didn't really seem affected by the hand. He kind of acted like, okay, I guess that's standard. Like, I'll be buying again for a thousand. And didn't really seem affected by the loss. Which is like, I just left that hand feeling very confused on a variety of reasons. You know, he was exuding strength. And then, like you said, like, a lot of what exuding strength is is exuding confidence, which most recreational players don't do unless they have a value hand or unless they're overcompensating with a bluff, and then it, that's kind of obvious as well. So, yeah, I just, I think I brought the hand in because it just, his demeanor was very odd, but, you know, breaking it down with you now, it, it kind of played itself with the hand that I had. Yeah, I think also the speed. Uh, but I guess, you know, some players be able to play pretty quickly, and I, I, I think I play a lot quicker than average, but I, I would not limp re-raise within, like, five seconds of when it gets back to me probably take a little bit more time, and I probably wouldn't show up within five seconds on the turn, but it seemed to him like it was a standard play, so. Yeah, and I think that I didn't necessarily feel the need to include that in the discussion too much. For for one, I actually I missed when you said he uh, re-raised quickly, you know, after limping. I do think that's interesting, because I think that as we talked about with Zach Elwood, uh, quick actions generally are polarizing. Uh, so pre-flop, that definitely fits. Obviously, post-flop, we can't necessarily, like... There, we just we can't necessarily fit this player shoving aces on this turn card into sort of any, like, reasonable strategy that even that might be affected by tells. But... What I was thinking earlier is that, yeah, this kind of bet is very polarizing, and I think that makes I think that makes this player shoving a queen-high flush somewhat more unlikely, which definitely makes calling a lot more appealing, uh, since I think this player has probably close to as many queen-high flushes as king-high flushes. Uh, so that significantly cuts into the, this player's value range if they would take a little bit more time just sort of fearing the king of spades, which I think is natural. Uh, you kind of have to fear for like, you know, 10 seconds or so before you can just value shove with the second up flush uh, on a four flush, a four flush board. Uh, so yeah, I, I do think that that definitely needs to have more to recall. Obviously, aces does not fit into a polarized range on this board. So, uh, I'm not sure exactly what to do with this tell in this situation, but when making the decision before, I think it lends itself towards a call. Sounds good. Hope to get back to those juicy MGM games soon. Likewise. <laughs>